0: You're listening to Light Church Podcast with Pastor Bill Carpenter. So, so, when I was interviewing for a position at Dort College, Dort is where I worked before USF, they started asking me these, the same set of questions Can you teach under, to Theology? Yes. Can you teach Liberation Theology? Yes. Can you teach Heresies and Sex? Yeah. Wait a minute Heresies and Sex. Dort, dort maybe was a little more progressive than I had realized. Um, Dort had a class called Heresies and Sex. Um, so I thought maybe, you know, some heresies do have a sexual component. Maybe that was what they meant. Uh, all this flashed in my head in half a second. And then I was like, oh, my interviewing philosophy. Yes, yes, I can teach that, absolutely. I can teach that. I mean, I figured worst case scenario, i just have to do a little research, right? Um, but as the interview continued, thank you, I realized uh, that what they had actually been saying was heresies and sex, S-E-C-T-S. So yes, that made much more sense. Yes, I can teach that. And I did teach that. Um, But but in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul is really giving them a lesson in heresies and sex, S-E-X. Now, the church in Corinth is just that. It's a church. They're not a bunch of heretics. But they are confused about some key theological ideas, and that's leading them into some bad behavior. And some of that confusion and bad behavior is related to sex. So to understand our particular passage correctly, I think we need to look at the letter as a whole. It's a letter, and of course letters have uh, a cohesiveness to them. Um, And so I want to give you a brief outline of the book and then look at how our text fits inside of that. So the letter, of course, starts with an introduction. It's from Paul to the church in Corinth. Um, Chapters 1 and 2, Paul talks about God's wisdom versus the wisdom of the world. So the world can't perceive the wisdom of God as anything except for foolishness. And so Paul talks about that. Then in chapters 3 through 4, he talks about church leaders. In chapters 5 through 7, he talks about sexual immorality and some other sexual issues. That's where our text falls. In chapters 8 through 11, he talks about liberty and the Christian life, uh, including things like food sacrificed to idols, whether you can eat that or not, uh, Paul's own apostleship and rites, and worship, particularly the Lord's Supper. And then in chapters 12 through 14, he talks about spiritual gifts. And in chapter 15, he talks about the resurrection of the dead. And chapter 16 is the conclusion. So this is our broad outline of the book. Now, throughout the various topics that Paul addresses in this letter, we see some ongoing themes that tie all these topics together and help us better understand what Paul wants us to to understand in our particular passage. So these themes are Paul's underlying assumptions, uh, what he thinks is most basically true about the gospel and the Christian life. So these themes must be applied to whatever ethical situation arises in the church Um, If our response is supposed to be in accord with the gospel. So as you read this first letter to the Corinthians, you'll see three prominent themes. At least I see three prominent themes. So the first one is that the church is those people who are powered by the Holy Spirit. The church is those people who are powered by the Holy Spirit. This idea is replete throughout the letter. It's, it's, It's practically in every paragraph. So Paul says, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we understand the wisdom of God, that it ceases to be foolishness. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the work of church leaders is made effective. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we use our bodies to honor God. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we consider others before we consider ourselves. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that worldly divisions are broken down, divisions between rich and poor, between men and women. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to do the tasks assigned to the church, things like worship and evangelism. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we will be resurrected from the dead. That's the whole book. The whole book is the Holy Spirit. So anytime the church faces a question about who it is or how it should live, we must remember that we are those people who are powered by the Holy Spirit. That's going to to be crucial to us answering any question that arises. So what that means is the normal limitations may not apply. And conversely, we might have some other limitations that do apply. So we're thinking in a new way because we're powered in a new way. So that's the first theme. Second theme, the gospel trumps individual rights. The gospel trumps individual rights. Or to put it another way, the church as a body and its mission to the world is more important than any one person. Time and time again throughout this letter, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they have become a part of a story that is bigger than any one individual and yet is meant to encompass all individuals. So some examples of this theme. There again throughout, throughout the, the entire book. Um, Paul writes, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You can't think about yourself first anymore. That's chapter 6, verse 19. Paul writes, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Just because you have a right to something doesn't mean you should do it. That's chapter 8, verse 9. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ, Paul says in nine twelve. Paul says, I have rights, but I choose not to use them if they hinder the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ comes first. In chapter 10, verse 24, he says, no one should seek their own good. But the good of others, the good of others always comes before our own good. In chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The Holy Spirit doesn't give you a gift for yourself. The Holy Spirit gives you a gift for the church. And in chapter 14, verse 26, Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So the gospel trumps individual rights because the gospel is the story of the son of God who became a human being and suffered and died as a human being for the sake of other people. He denied his own rights in order to make our life possible. When we join the church, that's the story we commit to. That's the story that we become a part of. The very nature of Christianity is giving up your rights for the sake of another person. So that's our second theme. Third theme, God will use our lives to put his power and goodness on display. God will use our lives to put his power and goodness on display. We should expect that. Our lives belong to God, and we should expect that he will use them to make himself known in whatever way he pleases. But because God's power and goodness are most fully known in the death and resurrection of his own son, we should not be surprised if the power of God in our lives looks like foolishness to the world. When God's power is displayed in our life, the world is going to think we look pretty stupid, is what Paul's saying. Paul writes, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world. That's in chapter 4, verse 9. Our lives are the place where God displays his power, but that power is going to look like foolishness to the world. It's going to look like death. We will be made a spectacle. So there's our three themes running through the letter to the church in Corinth. People are powered by the Holy Spirit. The gospel takes precedence over the individual. And God will use our lives to put his power and goodness on display. So our task today is to examine how these three themes affect our specific text, the text that Pastor Bill just read. So I'm going to read it again um, just to get us back to that point. Um, And of course, feel free to follow along. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, and I'm going to start with verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, (coughs) excuse me, uh, verse 25. So I will take a drink of water if you want to look that up real quick. Okay, here we go, starting with verse 25. Now concerning, oh, and I see we've got it up on the board again. Uh, I'm going to read it. That's great. Uh, now concerning, I'm going to, the, the, the actual Greek, sorry to pull out Greek here, but the Greek says, doesn't say the betrothed, it says virgins, which has this, this indication of betrothed, but I like the word virgins better, so I'm just going to substitute that word. So, uh, so bear with me. So wherever it says betrothed, I'm going to say virgins. Now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the virgin is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So in this passage, Paul states pretty clearly, I think, That he thinks it's better to be single and not having sex, that's an important caveat, uh, than it is to be married. This is as radical a statement in Paul's time as it is in ours. Paul is not opposed to marriage, and he certainly doesn't think it's a sin, but he favors singleness. I don't know any other way way to read this passage. It's important to note here that where I say singleness, which is kind of a modern term, um, Paul prefers the use of the word virgin, so that word that I was using. In other words, Paul is talking about people who are not married and who are not having sex. So that's what I mean when I refer to single people in the church. So such people may be committed to remaining single, or they may be open to marriage. They may be young, or they may be old. They may have never married, or they may have been married for a time. All of these different types of people fit into this category of single, people who are not married and not having sex. Those are the people that Paul is referring to in this passage. Uh, or at the very least, he's re- he may at times be referring to some people who haven't been married, but he also talks about those who had a wife and then no longer do. So there's lots of different categories of uh, singleness in this passage, and I want to make that clear. And uh, so single means those people who are not married and not having sex. And, of course, that's what makes this such a radical suggestion from Paul. He thinks that it's better to be single and celibate than to be married and having sex and possibly having children. Why? On its face, this seems absurd, right? Um, I mean, I think we all think that it's absurd. Uh, if you don't, more power to you. So I believe the answer to the why, why is Paul saying this, is both embedded in our text and made clear by our three overarching themes that we just talked about. So let's look at the text through the lens of our three themes. So we're going to look at the specific text through the lens of our three themes. So the first theme, remember, is the church are those people who are powered by the Holy Spirit. That's our first theme. The church are those people who are powered by the Holy Spirit. Most people think it's really not possible for teenage or adult human beings to control their sexual desires. I remember when I was in high school, there was a debate going on, you know, many years ago um, about whether the, the school nurse, sorry, this, this sermon is rated kind of PG-13. I hope that's okay with everybody. Whether the, whether the school nurse should, um, should pass out condoms for free. And there was some debate about this, but in the end, they said, yes, of course she should. Um, Why? Because teenagers are obviously going to have sex, and we would like it to be as safe as possible. But we can't stop them from having sex, so let's just control it at at least a little bit. So this is this idea that human beings who have reached a certain age are simply going to have sex. And it's not just non-Christians like my public high school who think this way. It's Christians who think this way. So, for example, advocates of some, a movement that's called the Marriage Mandate Movement, which is a whole other issue, but uh, something that kind of grew out of focus on the family, <coughs> these folks claim that the only people God actually calls to be single are people who essentially have no sexual desire, zero, none. These are really the only people who can be single obediently, Everyone else is bound to have sex, so they just better get married. Um, And then they can have sex there, and it's, you know, safe sex. Um, So, uh, for example, Frederica Matthews Green, who's a very well-known Christian scholar and um, author, writes, late marriage means fighting the designs of our bodies, and that's never a fight we can win. You cannot control your body, is what she's saying, and what the world is saying. The best you can do is make things as safe as possible. So this assumption that human beings are biologically programmed to have sex and that this programming is so powerful that we can't really resist it, at least not for very long, this is entirely forgetful of Paul's claim that we are people powered by the Holy Spirit. On this same question of whether... A virgin can resist having sex. Uh, A fourth century theologian named John Chrysostom, he writes this. But the virgin, on the other hand, has no remedy to extinguish the sexual fire because she's not having sex. She sees it rising to a crescendo and coming to a peak, but she lacks the power to put it out. Her only chance is to fight the fire so she is not burnt. Is there then anything more extraordinary than carrying within one all this fire and not being burnt That's John Chrysostom. What image does he call to mind as he discusses the virgin who feels sexual desire but does not give in to it? He uses the imagery of a fire that does not burn, a fire that does not consume. This should put all sorts of images in your head, biblical images, like a bush that is on fire, like three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who get thrown into a fiery furnace but are not consumed. Like the disciples on the day of Pentecost who have flames of fire resting on their heads. The fire that fills but does not consume is an image of the presence of God, and specifically the Holy Spirit. In our passage, Paul has already admitted that it's better to marry than to commit sexual sin, but this is very much a concession on his part. He clearly does not think that sexual sin is inevitable even in normal, healthy people. He thinks something else is possible. He thinks that Christians have within them the power to do something different, to win a fight that no one else can win, to carry within them all this fire and not be burnt. That power is the Holy Spirit. We are the people who are powered by the Holy Spirit. Is singleness and celibacy possible? Yes, Paul says, it is, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's not only possible, it's better. It's better to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit than depend on earthly powers and goods, like sexual pleasure. This dependence on the Holy Spirit marks the single person as someone who is different, as someone who lives by another set of rules and assumptions, as someone who has access to a new kind of power, A kind of power that is not available to humans in and of themselves. As Paul has already said earlier in his letter in chapter 4, verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So that's our first theme. Christians are people who are powered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes singleness, celibacy possible and good. Second theme the gospel and the church take precedence over the individual. The gospel and the church take precedence over the individual. (coughs) We see this theme not only in the greater letter, as we've already pointed out, but specifically in our passage as well. Paul gives such a strong endorsement to singleness because he believes it is of great benefit to the church. An individual person's celibacy is of great benefit to the larger body, the church. Paul freely admits that it's a harder road for the individual to be celibate, um, because, of course, a single person sacrifices those, those things people normally enjoy, like marriage, sex, and potentially children. <coughs> Excuse me. So these things, like marriage, sex, and potentially children, these things uh, not only bring personal pleasure and comfort, but they also bring social, financial, and political security and status. That was true back then, and it's still true today. But Paul is clear in his claim that the life of singleness is of great value and benefit to the church. The single celibate person has undivided attention and energy for the church and the gospel. A lot of work gets done with undivided attention and energy. Paul himself is the perfect example of that man. That man just goes, goes, goes. He's like the Energizer Bunny of the ancient Near East. Um, so... The one who is not married is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. So he has this undivided focus. While the married person's attention, of course, is divided between pleasing the Lord and then pleasing his or her spouse. And if you add children into the mix, that just divides the attention even further. (coughs) Now, I want to be clear here. Paul is endorsing singleness while at the same time, he is clearly recognizing that everyone has a right to get married if they want In other words, his endorsement of singleness is an endorsement of the good of the church over the rights of the individual. He is saying it's not wrong to marry, but first stop and consider what the church needs and what would be of benefit to the church. If the church can benefit from you being single and celibate, continue in that, he says. Will it be hard? Yes, it probably will. But will it be good? Yes, it certainly will. That is why Paul can say with great assurance, (coughs) sorry, (coughs) we're at the end of a long week, (coughs) with a bad cough. (coughs) So hopefully we'll get through this. Okay, so (coughs) Paul doesn't ask the virgins of Corinth to remain single because marriage is sinful, It's clearly not sinful. (coughs) Sometimes God will ask us to give up good things for the sake of the gospel, not just bad or sinful things. (coughs) So sometimes Paul wants us to think about giving up this notion of individual rights. This is a notion that is so ingrained in us as Americans that sometimes it's hard to even have any self-awareness of it. But the gospel itself is the story of a God who gave up Yes. Ah, Anne, you're a lifesaver. Thank you. (coughs) All right, I'm going to talk around my cough drop here. Okay, the gospel itself is the story of the Son of God who gave up his rights for the good of others. It was not required of him. He did it out of love for other people. And so even Jesus put his rights before the rights of the... uh, He put the rights of the church before his own rights. (coughs) And this was good, not only for the church, but for Jesus. It is for this reason that his name is exalted above every other name. (coughs) So while Paul honestly acknowledges the difficulty in giving up our right to be married, he also joyfully proclaims that this willingness to be like Jesus to give up what is rightfully ours for the sake of God's people, this is of great benefit to us. God sees when we obediently relinquish our rights for the sake of his people. This does not go unrecorded. Finally, our third theme is that God will use our lives to make himself known. And this is a theme I really want to concentrate on, that God will use our lives to make himself known. Our lives will be God's spectacle, Paul says. Paul uses this word spectacle in 1 Corinthians 4.9, where he says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world. Paul seems to be referencing the way Roman emperors would triumphantly re-enter Rome, leading behind them a train of goods and people who represent their victory after a battle or a war, or something like that. Usually the last group in this train were those people who have been condemned to death um, as kind of the final seal of the emperor's victory. These people were a spectacle to the world. The word spectacle has a sense of something impressive <coughs> or kind of over the top that is on public display. I apologize. I don't know if there's a good solution here. Uh, The public death of these people in the train of the emperor, usually in some over-the-top way like a gladiatorial games or something like that, uh, they were a spectacle meant to declare in the most impressive way possible that the emperor was victorious. And now here Paul is using this word and this imagery to clarify and explain the life of the Christian. What does he mean when he says that we are going to be a spectacle? To understand this, we must briefly remember what Paul said at the beginning of the letter, which is that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. That God's work and plan is so counter to the wisdom of the world that the world can only describe it in terms of foolishness. It looks like death to the world. And of course, in a very real sense, it is. Jesus died on the cross, the worst possible death you can have. And if that were the end of the story, the world would be right to dismiss it. and to laugh at Jesus and those who follow him. But here's the really interesting thing. It's not the end of the story. The foolishness of God is revealed as wisdom and power in and through the resurrection of Jesus. It is in the resurrection that Jesus' death becomes an act of power and even victory. This inverted order of revelation is embedded in the letter to the Corinthians. Paul begins the letter by saying that God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. That's the beginning. And he ends the letter by declaring the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of our own resurrection. In between, he deals with all sorts of issues and resolves them in ways that do not make sense from a worldly point of view. They look like foolishness. But from the point of view of the resurrection... They make sense. They make perfect sense. So these are the bookends of the Christian life. God's foolishness and God's resurrection. They're also the bookends of the letter to Corinth. God's foolishness and God's resurrection. God's power looks like weakness to the world. God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. It is only those who know the resurrection of Jesus who are able to see something different. The resurrection is both the revelation of God's wisdom and power, and it is itself God's wisdom and power. The resurrection of Jesus is both the economy of God, the work of God, and the revelation of the economy of God. In other words, the resurrection both makes reality, and it makes it possible for us to know that reality and participate in it. A new reality has entered the world through the resurrection of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is made able to see that new reality and to participate in it. (coughs) And it's because of this new reality that Paul says in his letter that it is better to be single. Um, Let's look at verses 29 through 31 again. Maybe we can put those up on on the board again. So starting with verse 29, which is right in the middle of our passage. Paul says... What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. The key phrases here are, the time is short, and this world in its present form is passing away it is clear to me that Paul is referring here to the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. In these three little verses, he summarizes the entire letter from start to finish. Christians are those people who live foolish lives, meaning lives that do not make sense to the world because they believe that this world is passing away in its present form and another greater world is coming and it's coming soon. So Paul's instructions here, the person who has a wife, live like you don't. The person who's buying things, live like you don't. So kind of the things of this world do not govern our life in this world. Uh, Those reflect the instructions he has throughout the entire letter. So he says, Christians who have a grudge against each other shouldn't sue each other in court. Well, why not? If you can get something out of it. Uh, He says, uh, Christians should refrain from marriage and sex. Why? If you can get something out of it. Um, he says uh, that the rich people should wait for the poor people and share with them. Why? I'm sure the rich people earn their money. It's theirs. They can do what they want in their bread in this case. He says each person should use their gifts and talents for the benefit of others, not themselves. None of this makes sense from a worldly point of view. It only makes sense in light of the resurrection. Paul says we should do these things because of the coming resurrection he says if the dead are not raised then yes paul actually says in chapter 15 we should eat and drink for tomorrow we die if the dead are not raised then this present world's standards and beliefs are the ones we should live by we should take what comfort and enjoyment we can get out of this life because this is life is all we got that's it but what if the dead are raised What if there is a new reality, and it is already breaking into this present reality? Then, if that's true, everything we thought we knew is turned on its head. Paul assures us that the primary reason for singleness is because the time is short, and because this present world is passing away. If that is true, then we must live according to the new reality, not the old one. We must prepare ourselves for that future that is coming, not the past that is already already going away. So, of course, we want to ask, what is the nature of this new reality? What is the nature of the people who live in this new reality? So I want to jump briefly away from 1 Corinthians 7 to Matthew 19, just real briefly. In Matthew 19, we have three stories. I'm guessing many of you are familiar with them. In the first story, the Pharisees ask Jesus a question about divorce, and Jesus responds by commanding faithfulness and by commending celibacy, by encouraging celibacy. In the second story, Jesus places a little child in front of his disciples and tells them that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, this little child. In the third story, Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell everything he has and follow Jesus. So... In the first and third story, the first story about commending celibacy and the third story saying sell all your stuff. In the first and third story, Jesus says we should give up the things of this world that make us feel safe, secure, and happy. Marriage, sex, money. It's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Nothing has changed. And in the second story, the one about the little child being put in front of the disciples, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to people like this. And the characteristic of the child that I think he's pointing us to is that little children, think little children, little children are the people who trust fully and without shame. That is the nature of a little child. A very small child not only trusts his parents, he trusts them without shame or apology. He doesn't feel any need to make an excuse for his dependency. It doesn't occur to him or her to make an excuse for her dependency. A little child is someone who is utterly dependent on another person without shame. So when Jesus asks his disciples to give up marriage and sex, and when Jesus asks the rich young ruler to give up his money, (coughs) he's asking these people to trust him instead of the things that they're used to trusting. So Jesus says, instead of trusting marriage and sex to make you feel happy and fulfilled, trust me. And he says to the rich young ruler, instead of trusting money to make you feel safe and secure, trust me. Get rid of those things that are making it hard for you to trust me fully and completely. Get rid of those things that keep kind of telling you that you're doing pretty good on your own. Because that's a lie. You're not. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul has told the Corinthians that it's better to be single because Christ is coming soon bringing with him the resurrection of the dead, bringing with him the kingdom of God, this new reality that has its own set of rules. And the reason it's better to be single is because singleness now is a sign of the new reality, the coming future. People who joyfully and obediently live in celibacy now are a sign that God's future is already breaking into our present. These people are already adjusting their lives to the new reality. Their lives declare that the time is indeed short, and that this world in its present form is already passing away. Uh, When I first met Nathan, he he was disgusted that I had a landline. (laughs) He thought that was ridiculous. He was like, you got to get a cell phone. And I was like, oh, I don't want a cell phone. Uh, But but here's, here's the truth. Nathan was living according to the future that was coming very soon, and I was living according to a past that was passing away very, very quickly. Um, and, uh, and so he, thankfully, ushered me into that new, wonderful age of the cell phone. Um, but he was more adjusted to that new age than I was because he had already been living according to those new rules. That's the idea here, that um, people who are celibate, people who are single, are already adjusting their lives to this new order that is coming. They are leaving behind the world that is passing away, and they are looking forward with their whole lives to the future that is coming in the resurrection. And so their lives declare this, I think, in at least two important ways. In other words, single people among us, single celibate people among us, they, they are signs and declarations of the coming new age in at least two important ways. First, they live lives that are every day powered by the Holy Spirit. So we're back to our first theme. Paul makes it clear that the life of celibacy is neither easy nor natural. But isn't that exactly the point? The life of celibacy is not natural. It is supernatural. When asked to describe the resurrection, Paul says in chapter 15, he says, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. A spiritual body is a body that is powered by the Holy Spirit. It's a real body. Paul's not talking about a ghostly form here. A real body fully powered by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to explain this by saying, using Jesus as his example. Jesus has a spiritual body. Jesus is a spiritual body. And so we will bear the image of Jesus, the second Adam, the heavenly man, the one who is the first fruits from the dead. That is the resurrection. Bodies fully powered by the Holy Spirit. And so single people express in their bodies the power of the Holy Spirit and the true nature of the resurrection. In the resurrection, we will be those people who fully depend upon the Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us. People who are single now manifest this trust and dependence on the Holy Spirit in a way that married people simply do not. Now, this is not to say that married people can't and don't trust in the Holy Spirit. They, of course, can't and do. But it is to say that celibacy is a graphic expression of dependence on the Holy Spirit, an expression which most married people don't participate in. Single people do. And so they are an expression of this power of the Holy Spirit in a very unique way. Second, <clears throat> single people demonstrate the proper place for our trust. The world is a scary place. And we human beings tend to look at, to those tried and tested things that make us feel safe family and money. Money's another sermon, but this sermon is family. Single people are those people who live without making a family of their own. They are not married, they are not having sex. They are not producing biological children. Marriage and sex tells us that even if the whole world is against us, at least one person will stick with me and be on my side. Children tell us that even though I will someday die, my children will live on, and so I'll have kind of this legacy or something like that. <laughs> Hopefully that wasn't a laugh because of my actual children. Um, <laughs> good legacy. Um, no. I have wonderful children. There he is right there. Uh, But, so family is a hedge and stronghold against the terrors of this world. That's really really what it is. That's why we still long for families, even in this very enlightened and kind of liberated age. Um, The person who gives up this, this ability to make their own family, is choosing to trust God fully and without shame. Christian singleness is a vivid picture of trusting God rather than ourselves, of choosing to believe that it is God who gives us life and it is God who gives us community, family. That is the church. Single people declare without reservation, the church is my family. The church is those people who will go with me into the resurrection for all eternity. And so single people declare, I don't make my own family, God makes my family for me. And that family is the church. And of course, all of this creates quite a spectacle in the world's eyes. How foolish is the person who has grown up and hasn't had sex yet? How hilarious it is to contemplate the 40-year-old virgin. What a joke. These people are so foolish. That's what the world says. That's the wisdom of the world. Single people, you are a spectacle to the world. There is a very good chance that the world will laugh at you and make fun of you. Actually, there's not a very good chance. There is a 100% chance that the world will laugh at you and make fun of you. But to us, to the church, to the people in this room and the people around the world who know Jesus, you are God's wisdom. You are a sign of God's future. You are the birth pangs that signal new life. You are the resurrection breaking into our present reality. You are the sign that the emperor you follow is victorious. Do not be discouraged. Do not be ashamed. And to the rest of us, those of us who are not single, we must remember with gratitude what the single folks in our midst are doing for the church and for the world. We must remember that their obedience to Christ is a living, breathing sign of the power of the Holy Spirit the reality of the resurrection, and the truth that the church is actually our first family. So we as a church want to be praying about ways that we can celebrate singleness and encourage it and make singleness something that is good to be lived in this place and with these people. We want married people, both those with and without children, to think about how we can invite the single folks in our church into our family so that we can not only learn from them, but we can learn with them, and they can do the same with us, that we can really think of the church as our first and truest family so that all of us as a church remember that our deepest identity is that we are those people who look forward to the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are good and that you are alive, that you rose from the dead, and that you are coming back to raise us from the dead as well. I pray that you would help us to see that fully and truly, that we would know that this world is not um, the standard by which we live and move and breathe and have power and meaning, but you and the world that you are bringing with you, um, that that it is that world that we live in. It's that world that is more real and more true. Uh, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us the power to live fully in the power of your resurrection, and to know without a doubt that you are trustworthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Josh.
1: Um, I think we can all uh, identify with this at some point, whether it's just us seeking our own desires, our own rights, our own wants to be happy and satisfied and joyful in our lives. Um, and I identify with this as being recently married and um, wanting to please my wife, wanting her to be happy and joyful, Um, but with seeking our own satisfaction, seeking our own desires comes a lot of fear, Um, fear of death perhaps being the biggest one, losing my wife or losing uh, loved ones in your life is a huge fear, Um, but in Christ, there is no fear because Jesus conquered death on the cross, and in Jesus, We have life, we have hope, um, so we don't have to fear, we don't have to fret. Um, Jesus came, he lived as a human, he lived a perfect life, and that life was sacrificed for us. As Christina said, he gave his life for us so that we may have life. Um, And it's all through the resurrection that when we put our faith in Christ, that when we put our trust in him, that we don't see these things as foolishness anymore, but we see them as the wisdom of God and the truth of God. And it's all because in Jesus, we have that Holy Spirit who makes these things known to us. And so if you feel these things today, I'm going to have the prayer team come up and we're going to finish with one last song. So I'll pray us out. Father God, we thank you that you've come to earth as a human, to come as Jesus, to come and live life here with us, to be with us as Emmanuel God that you died the death that we should have died um, you put it in the grave and God through your resurrection you've given life to us you have made all things new in your resurrection and that we now live in this new age that you have brought to us um, but it is by your blood that we are saved and God you have brought healing to us and you have brought life to our bones and that one day we may be with you completely and fully. Um, but until that day, God, we praise you. We make you known. Um, God, we give up our rights so that others may know you, so that um, our lives may become less and less, and that your name may increase here on this world. So, God, I thank you for your name, and I thank you for the life that you've lived and the life that you've given us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.